Hello, Stonebridge. I am Pastor John, and this is the Stonebridge Extras podcast. And in the Extras podcast, what we are doing is we're looking at that extra stuff that just wasn't able to make it into a sermon, something that was interesting, a deep dive, if you will. This week, we're focusing on doubt. And we've been, we'll be looking at doubt in our worship service, and we're just looking at the ways in which Jesus was not afraid of doubt. In our Extras podcast, I wanted to take this a step further this week. Instead of talking about doubt as something that we just don't need to be afraid of, I wanted to talk about doubt as something that can actually be positive. It can help us grow. It can help us develop. And in some instances, doubts and constant doubting can be an expression of the spiritual gift of faith. Now, this understanding of doubt that I'm talking about, I, I want to tell the story about how I came to this understanding and what I mean by saying doubt can be a positive thing. But in order to do so, I have to tell a, a story from my own life. And it was a story of a specific moment. It was the moment when I realized doubts can actually be positive, can actually help us grow and develop in our faith in a very specific way. I was in a library. It was during my college years. I was probably around age 21 or 22, and I was sitting there in a library reading a book, and as I read this book, two sentences from two different writers collided inside my head. Now, before I explain those two sentences and talk about this moment where doubts became something positive to me, I have to explain something about myself and my past. There was a point in my life where I was a very obnoxious person. I'm sure there's been multiple points in my life where I've been a very obnoxious person, but between ages 18 to about 21, in a very specific way, I was obnoxious. You see, I became a Christian around age 16. That's when Jesus became more than just a name that I said and the Lord of my life. And I began earnestly trying to follow Jesus and seeking what it meant to follow Jesus. And part of that, for me, was reading theology. I, I love theology. I've loved theology since I was a Christian. I liked reading very in-depth things at the time. But the problem was, I was reading theology in order to mask the uncertainty I felt of my own faith. I was a young person. I was a young Christian. And for some reason, I felt like I had to have more answers than any human being could actually have. So I would read theology not to learn more about God, but I would read theology to mask the doubt and uncertainties that I felt. I would push them away. I'd push them down. And what this resulted in was me being argumentative and being uncomfortable with other people's doubts. Sadly, I think many Christians get to that place very quickly. It's like we can't handle other people's doubts because it brings our own doubts to the surface. And we're afraid that if our faith falls apart, we lose a part of our identity. That's where I was. During this phase, I became very enamored by a specific writer. And this brings us to the first sentence. Because remember what I said at the beginning of this podcast, I want to tell the story of when two sentences collided in my mind and all of a sudden I became comfortable with doubt, and not just comfortable, but welcoming of my own doubts. This first writer, his name is John Calvin. 
And John Calvin is famous. I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, have heard of John Calvin. He was a reformer. He was born French, and he helped lead the Reformation. He was a second-generation reformer. So Martin Luther in the 1500s comes along, posts his 95 theses. The Western church splits apart, and a, a, a military struggle ensues, and a a uh, philosophical, theological struggle ensues, a political struggle ensues, the Western world just falls apart. And John Calvin was in the second generation of reformers. He developed theology. He wrote a massive volumes called the Institutes, maybe not massive, but large volumes called the Institutes. And during this phase of my life, when I was a new Christian, I just grabbed on to John Calvin. I think what I saw was that in a lot of the people that I knew to be Calvinists and use that term, they had a certainty to them. They seemed to know what they were talking about. And me, when I was trying to mask my own doubts, trying to really be somebody that I wasn't, I think that certainty attracted me. So I would read John Calvin. And as I read John Calvin, I would start feeling more and more superior to people who hadn't read John Calvin. And like I said, I became very obnoxious during this phase. I would talk down to people. I was arrogant. It was not my best moment in life. But I came across this sentence that John Calvin had written in his Institutes. And this sentence that John Calvin had written, it's a famous line. It's a famous thought. But what John Calvin says in his Institutes and this is the translation I'm using here because it comes from the Latin, I believe. He says that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Let me say that again. Man's nature, and by man he means human. Human nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. So I was reading John Calvin to become more certain about who God is. I was reading John Calvin to have my doubts be washed away or overwhelmed with the force of his logic and his reason. But then he says this line that really human nature is to be a factory of idols. And that sent me on this tailspin of realizing that John Calvin is correct. We as Christians and human beings in general, we are constantly creating idols. We are creating images of God in our own head. And an idol doesn't have to just be a statue that you bow down to. It can be a false image of God in your own mind. Your ideas of God can lead to an idol. So remember that I was reading John Calvin to try to gain certainty. But this one line gave me even more uncertainty than I'd had before. All of a sudden, I was questioning my own ideas of God that I'd learned from writers like John Calvin. And that certainty that I saw from the Calvinists around me, the people who would use that term to describe themselves, all of a sudden I started wondering, well, what about their picture of God is actually an idol? How has their own propensity towards idolatry come and taken over their idea of God? It actually increased my uncertainty. And it began me down this path of almost anxiety about doubts. I mean, maybe some of you are more comfortable with doubts than I am, um, but I think a lot of us, we're not very comfortable with doubts, especially when we're banking our entire lives on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
and the testimony that we get from these ancient writings that were written down thousands of years ago, and we can't ask the people who wrote them down just what they meant. I think some of these doubts, they're, they're real, and I started to feel some anxiety about it because I was banking a lot on following Jesus. So this then brings us to the second sentence. That first sentence is Calvin's where he says that human nature is basically uh, being to be a factory of idols. The second sentence, though, it comes from a much more surprising source. It comes from a theologian that is not as famous as John Calvin, but was famous in his own day. And before I say his name, I want to say this is a theologian that I don't agree with on nearly anything. But I make it a practice, and I've always made it a practice, to try to read people I don't agree with. There, there's a challenge in there that I find is helpful. So when I say this person's name, this is not, if you are familiar with him, this is not an endorsement of all of his thoughts. This does not mean that I agree with his theology. There are serious points of disagreement that I have with him. But this theologian, his name is Paul Tillich. And Paul Tillich was a German. He came of age during the beginning of the Nazi regime, and he actually opposed the Nazis. And in 1933, he lost his professorship in Germany, and he came to the United States. He learned English, and he began teaching at Union Theological Seminary. Then he went up to Harvard and taught at Harvard for a while, and then finished at the University of Chicago. And in his day, really in the 1950s and the early 1960s, I think he died in 1964, Paul Tillich was remarkably famous. He was on the cover of Time magazine in the 50s. It's hard for us, I think, to imagine a theologian being on the cover of Time magazine, but there Paul Tillich was. Now, I said earlier, I don't agree with a lot of his thoughts, and I still don't. Uh, sometimes when I would read Paul Tillich, I would really wonder, is this even Christian faith that we're talking about here? He was very focused on philosophy. He was very focused on bringing existential philosophy into Christian faith. So when you read his work, there's a lot of words in there that I don't know. And he starts using a bunch of terms over and over again, and he's changing the definition of these terms, and it's pretty hard to keep up with. But I found myself around age 21 in the midst of feeling this anxiety connected to doubt, in the midst of wondering what kind of idols was I making in my own head. I found myself reading Paul Tillich, a book he wrote called The Courage to Be. And I'll confess that a lot of this book, I, don't, I didn't really understand what it was saying. Looking back, I've tried to reread it a couple times. It's still difficult at times for me to really understand what he's talking about. Like I said, he uses a lot of philosophical terms, and terms seem to change their meaning right under your nose as you're reading them. But I was reading this book about, called The Courage to Be, and in it he talks about this idea of the courage to be, which is the courage to actually exist as we are, to pronounce our existence and in the face of anxieties that we feel in life to assert that we do actually exist, that we are here. And he roots the courage to be in God. But he ends the book with this line. And it's a line that I read it and immediately I had memorized it. The end of this book, the very last line, Paul Tillich says, The courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God disappears in the anxiety of doubt. 
Let me say that one more time and then I'll explain this quote and why it was so important for me. Paul Tillich says that the courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God disappears in the anxiety of doubt. Remember I said that Paul Tillich, he uses terms with different meanings at times. So in this quote, there's, there's two different uses of God here. But he says that the courage to be, to really exist, to know that we are here and to really exist in the way God has made us to exist, that is rooted in the God who appears when God has disappeared in the anxiety of doubt. That second use of God there. What Wattilic is referring to isn't the God that actually exists, but it's the God in our minds. It's the God that has been passed down to us. It's the God that the Christian faith has at times overstated and the depiction of God that misrepresents God. And we as Christians, we have debated God's nature, God's character for thousands of years. It's just part of the church's history. So when Tillich says that this, this courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God disappears, what he means is this courage to be, to really embrace life as God wants us to have it, it's rooted in the God that actually exists and that, although Tillich wouldn't say exist, for those of you who are familiar with Tillich, you know what I'm saying, but the God who is actually there. And this courage to be, it's rooted once our anxiety about our doubts have torn down our ideas of God. So remember I said that this was a story of two sentences colliding and there they are. One is John Calvin telling me at age 18, 19, around there, that human nature is to be a factory of idols. And me having all these anxieties and these doubts, wondering what is an idol in my beliefs in God? What is actually from God? And then Paul Tillich coming along a couple of years later and me reading his line where he says, really, the way I interpret it, the only way that we actually know God is when we let the anxiety that surrounds our doubts tear down our ideas of God. And we do this trusting that God will appear as God is to us. So let me put this all together now. What this did for me, this moment where I'm in this library reading this book by Paul Tillich and this line from John Calvin is at the front of my mind and these two sentences come together. What it did for me was it helped me to realize my doubts were not something to run away from. That God actually uses our doubts to tear down the idols in our minds. Doubts aren't always bad. In fact, I've come to believe that doubts in and of themselves, they're never really bad. Now, when doubt transforms in our mind to unbelief, obviously there's an issue there. But doubts and faith can coexist. In fact, I think faith has to have a level of doubt in it. Because I think the Holy Spirit uses those doubts to tear down our false impressions of God. Those doubts, they might be there for a reason. There might be a misconception of God that you have grabbed onto at some point. And those doubts, they can recalibrate us. So, for me, 
when it comes to doubts and I start feeling a doubt about something, I try to not run away from it. I try to not just push it to the side. Instead, I try to chase it down as hard as I can. And I just say, what is this doubt coming from? What is it focused on? And how might God be using this doubt to help me have a deeper understanding of how God works in the world? And I've learned that it's okay to express doubts to other Christians. It might make them uncomfortable at times, but it could be good for them. And as long as we are surrounded with communities that seek to understand God, and as long as we are reflecting on Scripture honestly and in good faith, not just trying to use Scripture to enforce what we already believe, but letting ourselves be challenged by Scripture, as long as those are around, doubts are perfectly safe. And we can express them, we can debate them, we can talk about them, and we can trust the entire time that through this process, the Holy Spirit is working. So, some of you out there, you're listening, you may not really struggle with doubts, um, but I know a lot of you do. And for each and every one of us, I think that our churches, and specifically at Stonebridge, I think we have to become more comfortable with doubt and recognize it can be a tool of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing that I'll say here to end, I said at the beginning of this that I thought that doubt could be an expression of the spiritual gift of faith. Oftentimes when we talk about the spiritual gift of faith, we talk about an unwavering faith. And I think we get a picture of people who don't actually doubt. That is true. That, that can be an expression of the spiritual gift of faith. But another expression of this spiritual gift is the person who has doubts, who wrestles with doubts, whose doubts are never far from mind, but whose faith still exists in the midst of those doubts. A faith that is enduring, a faith that is resilient, and a faith that has swallowed up all of those other doubts and a faith that is strong enough to recognize that doubt and faith can coexist. To me, that is a picture of deep and abiding faith. So, Stonebridge, I wish you the best this week, and I hope that if you do have any sort of doubts, you're able to trust that your doubts do not change Jesus' existence, that Jesus was raised from the dead, regardless of if you doubt it or not, and not run from those doubts but instead embrace them and really seek how might the Holy Spirit be working on you through those doubts. God bless you all, and I wish you the best. Amen.